to the book of Exodus, chapter 19, chapter 20. I will be in Leviticus some. I'm not going to give a lot of addresses, as in book, chapter, and verse. Um, it's in there. And so we're in the we're in the sixth covenant. Six of the eight covenants of the Bible. Tonight we're going to share the Mosaic Covenant. You will find a lot of that, as I said, in Exodus 19 and 20. A lot of the law throughout Leviticus. As I say Mosaic Covenant, let me just more simply say the Law of Moses. We're going to share the Law of Moses. It's a, it's a covenant in and of itself, if you will. And this covenant contains very precise, detailed information in these laws, and it goes on and on. And we could dig into this for months. We could just stop right here on the Mosaic Covenant and park here for several months. Um, that's something I would actually love to do. It doesn't seem to be the, the, the popular thing in a lot of ways, but we're not going to do that. As a matter of fact, I don't even believe... I'm going to split it up into two messages. Just tonight, we're going to try to cover what we can to, to help us in understanding or refreshing of this covenant. This covenant that is conditional. Out of the eight covenants, there are six that are unconditional. There are two that are conditional. The Edenic covenant was conditional. And the Mosaic covenant is conditional. And as we look at the participants in this covenant, this is God's covenant to not Moses, but all of Israel. This is God's covenant to Israel. Now the covenant was given to Moses, but Moses stood in a position as representation for Israel. Okay? And we find clarity in that throughout the Scriptures. In Exodus 19.3, it says that Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him from the mountains, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. Clearly understanding here, this is God's covenant, not, not to just Moses, not to the Gentiles, but to Moses and all of Israel. Deuteronomy 4, 7 and 8 points out that the nation of Israel has righteous judgments in the law. And then in, the, in Psalms 147, 19 and 20, it speaks of the statutes and the judgments to Israel and says of the Lord that He hath not dealt with any other nation. Uh, at this point, this is... This is God's covenant to Israel. Malachi 4.4 4 speaks of the law of Moses, which was commanded to Israel. And as we consider the provision for this covenant, there is one key provision in the Mosaic covenant, and that is the law of Moses. And some can think that this just consists of Ten Commandments. People think of Moses, people think of the law, people think of Ten Commandments. Well, it's a lot more laws than just 
Ten Commandments. Now you can use the Ten Commandments as a table of contents for all of these laws. And, and one way or another, all these laws will fit under those ten. But there's a lot more laws than, than just the Ten Commandments as some would think. And since we're not going to spend months going through this, we would if we went through all of these laws and, and broke down every one of them. Uh, there would be a lot of provisions in this covenant to share. So what we're going to do is make seven observations of this covenant of the law of Moses, the Mosaic covenant tonight. Seven observations and one is the entirety of the law. As we consider the law of Moses here, there are 613 specific commandments that are given. And within that 613 commandments, we have 365 negative, if you want to call it, forbidden, the thou shalt nots. And then there are 248 of the positive thou shalt, things that should be done. And it doesn't surprise me that there's, that there's 117 more of the thou shalt nots than the thou shalt. I mean, this was written to, to sinners, you know. And uh, it kind of reminds me of the preacher that he preached a sermon and he, he stepped down from the pulpit and one man approached him and he said, that was a good sermon, but I think that ought to be preached to sinners. And the preacher's comment was, that's who I thought I was preaching to. And we're, we're all saved sinners. So I'm not surprised at the, at the number ratio of commandments. Some people, you know, think that a, that a sermon that sounds negative to some people it isn't going to happen much. But, but when you read the Bible, I mean, there's a lot of sermons on sin all through the Bible. And, and so there were more negative than positives here. But let's move on from the entirety of the law in that observance, and let's observe the fact that there are blessings and there is judgment in this law. And considering that, that tells us the conditional nature of this covenant. Because to keep the law, there are blessings for obedience, and there's judgment for disobedience. Exodus fifteen twenty six makes it very simple. It says, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God and wilt do that which is right in His sight and will give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. What an incentive. What an incentive for those who believed on the Messiah who was to come, those who believed in the promises of God made to Abraham that the Messiah would come through his lineage, that if they would do right, they would be blessed. Great incentive here. But we see the conditional nature of the covenant in this observation. To look into a third observation, the blood sacrifice was added. Now we have blood sacrifice. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. 
For it is the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. That word atonement, some people have changed the syllables around and, and they say that means at one with God. And, and that's true in some ways, but it's not fully there yet, if you will. Because atonement means a covering. Atonement is a covering for sin. It is not the removal of sins. The blood of the animal made a covering for sins, but they, it never took it away. And it never cleared the conscience of the one who was being sacrificed for by the priest when he went in with that blood and he sprinkled it on the mercy seat. And this was done over and over, year after year, annually, constantly for the people in the Old Testament. It was, it was just a continual thing that was done and there was never the, the cleansing of the conscience and a clear conscience. Uh, so can you imagine, can you just imagine those saints who were around, who had been through that over and over and then John the Baptist comes along and he says, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Can you imagine the one who, who thought, I never have to annually have this done. No one will go to God for me now. The veil will be rent in twain and the way to God is open through Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Only the blood of the Messiah removes sin. Now, now the blood of the animal that was given, it was given as a shadow of things to come. And it did provide forgiveness. And it did restore one to fellowship with the Lord. But it wasn't a completion until Christ came. But as we look at this blood sacrifice that has been added. I read through Leviticus chapters 1 through 7 this week, and we find offerings that related to this. You'll find, if you read Leviticus 1 through 7, you will find five offerings that are related to this. And that would be the burn offering, the meat offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, and the peace offering. And you had some sweet savor offerings here. And you had some non-sweet savor offerings here. Okay? The three that were sweet savor offerings were the burn offering and the meat offering and the peace offering. And the ones that were the non-sweet savor offerings were the sin offering and the trespass offering. And there was a distinction here. What made one a sweet savor offering and what made one a non-sweet savor offering? Well, you find in Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 3 that some of these were voluntary offerings of one's own free will. I'll go ahead and read that if I can get there. No, it's pinned up. It's right there in Leviticus 1.3 though, that some of these were voluntary offerings. They were gifts. They were sacrifices. They were offerings. And then you had some that were required offerings and they were non-sweet savor offerings. 
And that was the sin and the trespass offering. Now, you also had different animals that were offered in these sacrifices under this law. Because you had some that, you had some that were cattlemen. And they brought from their herd. You had others who were keepers of the sheep. And they brought from their flock. If you weren't a cattleman, and if you weren't a keeper of the sheep, then you were allowed to bring a pigeon or a dove. Now, you couldn't offer that pigeon or dove just in any season, though. Because that pigeon and dove, it wasn't edible. It wasn't suitable to eat in just any season. I reckon there might have been some that would want to bring it out of season to the Lord because it was no use to them. But, you know, the Lord knows everything through and through. And He inspects the sacrifice and He inspects the sacrificer. And something that is of no use to us is of no use to God. Because God requires our very best. He wanted the cattleman to bring the flawless, the best of his herd. For the one who kept the sheep to bring the very best of the flock. God does not want our leftovers. If, if Christianity is only for you in a time of convenience, then it's, then it's nothing at all to God. And that's just the truth. It is always going to cost to serve God. If it's costing you something of your time, of, of numerous things, praise God for it. Because it should cost us something. David said in 2 Samuel 24, 24, that, that he would not give anything to the Lord of that which did not cost him. He knew that there was sacrifice involved in sacrifice to the Lord. I mean, it's called sacrifice. And that's exactly what it is. The sacrifice was to be the best that one had. It was to be of the greatest value and cost of the sacrificer, whatever was given. We don't sacrifice the animals on the altar today. However, Paul brought up something that relates this to you and I today as we consider sacrifice for our Lord who is fully worthy, worthy of it. In Romans 12:1, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The sacrifice was killed and placed on the altar and burnt and sent up to God. But today we're to be a living sacrifice for him. And so and so what's reasonable is when it costs you and I when we serve the Lord. If there's inconveniences and I say inconveniences concerning Concerning our flesh, because there, there should be nothing inconvenient about serving the Lord. He deserves our all. He is our all. He is everything. So blood sacrifice was added. We see another observation, and that's back to the diet restrictions again. Through several of the covenants, the, the appetite always came up. 
And now we're back to the diet restrictions over again. And they have changed from the Noahic covenant in the day of Noah. If you remember, every animal you could freely eat for that portion of time. But there have been restrictions that have been put on this in the Mosaic covenant now. For instance, the beast had to be cloven hooved. In other words, in other words, kind of like two toes, a division in the hoof. So no pig, but there was cow, there was the deer, and, and that was okay for the eating. They, they not only had to be cloven hooved, but they had to chew the cud. In other words, if you pictured a cow right now, you would probably picture his bottom jaw moving. Because that bottom jaw always seems to be moving. They always seem to be eating. They, a cow, you'll find that jaw moving at least eight hours a day. And the reason why is because they chew it up and it doesn't digest, but it goes down and they have a muscle that brings, that brings it back up and they chew it again so that they're able to digest it. They chew the cud. Okay, and that was the specifics that were given that, that made, that made, you know, the qualifications for what you could eat. The fish had to have fins and it had to have scales. So the bass was okay, but the catfish not. All right. Uh, the fowls of the air. There, no bird of prey could be in the diet. In other words, the, the hog, the eagle, the vulture, these things weren't okay. Among the insects, there was one, and it was the locust. And it was only one kind of locust that was part of the diet restrictions that was okay. And what also gets brought back up in, in this covenant that we look into, is the death penalty. There was the death penalty we already saw for murder. But now the death penalty has been expanded in the Mosaic Covenant and it includes idolatry, it includes adultery, it included cursing God, it included cursing parents. Yes, for cursing parents, it was the death penalty. Um, breaking the Sabbath, practicing witchcraft, among other things that went on, uh, the death penalty was warranted for those things. But we also see a sign of the covenant here. And it was the same sign as in the Abrahamic covenant. It was circumcision. However, it represented something different as we get into the law now. In the Abrahamic covenant, it was a sign of faith in the promises of God to Abraham that the Messiah was going to come through his lineage. It was faith in the Messiah through those promises. And now circumcision stood for submission to the law of Moses. I mean, after all, this is God in written form, the law. It is his, it is his perfect character. And, and so it was a sign of submission to that law. But we not only have a sign, we can also say that there was a token of the covenant. A token of this covenant in the law of Moses was the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was to be a day of rest. It, it, there, there's scripture that talks about dwelling with the family in the home on the Sabbath. A day that was to be set aside for rest. There was no gathering of manna. If you did, 
on the Sabbath, it would spoil. It wouldn't be any good. So you didn't gather manna. You didn't gather wood. You weren't to travel. You weren't to do any trading. You weren't to go to the marketplace on the Sabbath. It was a day that there was to be a ceasing from labor. And it was to be kept holy. You might think about the pattern that God gave and that He created all that He created in the first six days. And on the seventh day, He rested. And of course, you know, that's not because God was tired, because He neither sleeps nor slumbers. He never gets tired, but everything was finished. So everything was to be finished, and it was to be a different kind of day. There wasn't complete inactivity, but it wasn't to be the kind of day that you had during the week when you worked. It was to be set aside, and it was to be different. It was to be set aside for rest. And we might consider an illustration that this Sabbath day might give. And that is, the Christian now can find rest in Jesus Christ. We don't... The rest isn't just in heaven. In Hebrews 3 and 4, when it talks about how there remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God, there is rest here. We can rest in the Lord Jesus Christ here in all we go through. That's what He wants us to do. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest unto your souls. We can rest in Him. So it might be something we think about in this. The Sabbath was a day for holy convocation also. Now, I don't know how much assembling was done here, but the priests did offer for the sins of the people on the Sabbath. I just, uh, I hear a lot about rest and I read a lot about rest, but not a whole lot about a lot of assembling going on. But the pre, but the holy convocation was simply the priest offering sacrifices on the Sabbath. To treat the Sabbath as any other day was worthy of that death penalty. It was to be set aside. It was to be special. And as we look into, let's just, we'll probably finish this point and stop here tonight and finish up. Another week on this. But let's look at the purpose of the law. There's a world out there confused about the law. Because when people say they believe they're a good person, they're not a murderer, they do good things, I don't see how God would reject me. They're not, most are not able to connect this, but they're trying to live according to the law. I mean, the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots is, is do good and don't do this. And that's what people are trying to do to be accepted by God. What is the purpose of the law? Well, we have an ultimate purpose we'll close with, but we have a little list we can look at as we consider this law of Moses. The purpose of the law reveals the holiness of God and the standard of righteousness. Notice I say the standard. People come up with their own standards of righteousness, but you understand this truth endureth to all generations and the word will not pass away. This is the standard for righteousness. God in written form in his perfect law. 
So it reveals the holiness of God, the law does. Another purpose it has, it provided a rule of conduct. A rule of conduct for, for the saved and the unsaved. Uh, everyone could see the law and, and, and should look to that law. It was, it's a good rule of conduct. It provided an occasion for worship for another purpose. The people and their families, they would gather together and they would stand all day and they would listen to the monotone reading of the law of the Lord. And they were satisfied and they were worshiping God as they considered the law. Look through the 119th Psalm at all the things in every single verse. And it's a lot of verses. Something is said about the word of God in some way. And I love the one where the psalmist says, I delight in thy law. A purpose of the law, it kept the Jews a distinct people. Their eating habits, their clothing habits. It was a distinction at that time. And it was something important for that time. It served as a middle wall of partition. The law would bring blessings to the Jews if they would obey the law. So it set up a middle wall of partition. And it was just for the Jews initially. When the Gentiles could partake, it was a surrendering. It was a committing over to, to everything that it entails, the commands, the customs, the practices, the ceremonial portion of the law, the civil portion of the law, the moral portion of the law. The purpose of the law, it revealed sin. If you're going down an old road and you're going 70 miles an hour and you see no signs, you don't know that you're doing anything wrong. You may not be. We don't know. But when you see that 55 mile an hour speed limit sign and you're going 80 now, you know that you've done wrong. It's a, it's a, it shows the wrong that's being done. And that's what the law does. The law reveals sinfulness. Romans 7, 7, Paul said, I had not known sin, but by the law. I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. So he didn't know that it was wrong, that he harbored a desire in his heart for what someone else had. He might have grown up, well, he didn't, but... But I grew up with the carnal rule, you can look but you can't touch. In my unsaved home and around the unsaved environment I was in, but, but you can't. I was sitting with a preacher at Whataburger one day, and he watched this big Winnebago go by. And he said, man, I sure like that. And he said, I don't want his though, I want my own. I'm not coveting. I'm not coveting his. Paul didn't even know that that was sin until the law exposed it and showed him the purpose of the law is to reveal sin. The purpose of the law is to show that no one can please God in and of their own humanity by themselves. Every single person needs divine aid in order to live pleasing to God. It's not going to happen with the natural man. 
It's, it's just not possible at all. Yet that is somehow the secret that just keeps going on in the world. I know I'm good. Proverbs says that people will proclaim their own goodness. But when we see God's law, we see that we fall short. We see that there's no way that we can please God. And we, and our lives and our sinfulness, which passed upon us, every one of us, in the same boat from the first man, Adam, it says so in Romans 5, 12, that sin is passed upon everyone and death by sin. And so we're all in that same boat. No one can please God in their humanity. The best human being on their best day falls way short of the glory of God. The purpose of the law is that it leads one to faith. Galatians 3.24 calls the law a schoolmaster. The law of God, it's an instructor. It's a teacher. It's a tutor. And as we look into the, to the law, we see our guilt and we see our need. And it brings one to Christ that they may know Christ as their Lord and Savior. The law, a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. And that's a good place to start stopping on this tonight. Right there on that verse. Because we see in this that the law was never a means of salvation. The law has never had the function of saving a person. It was, it's never been God's intent that someone do the best they can according to the thou shalts and do as little of the thou shalts not as you possibly can. And God's going to weigh it out and he probably has a good place for you in heaven, you mower of the neighbor's grass. Doing so good for someone. It was never meant for that. Never a means of salvation. But it's a perfect standard. The law is a perfect standard. And it has only been fulfilled by one. Jesus came not to destroy the law. But to fulfill the law. And he completely satisfied the law of God. We're not only saved by his death. We're saved by his life. We're saved by his perfect righteous life. That no one else could offer to the father. For everyone else the law did and does place this weight of guilt and, and the, the dark cloud over their head of being guilty, showing that all fall short of the glory of God. But when Christ died for us, the law no more had that authority over the child of God. The law doesn't rule over the believer, but Christ and His grace Rules over the believer. There's a new high priest now. Jesus is our great high priest who was offered, not annually, with the blood of bulls and goats, but once for all our sins. Praise God. We don't have a Levitical priesthood. We have a Lord and Savior priesthood. And as I say that, let me say, let, let me send something off by saying, the law is good. 
And when we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, and the Holy Spirit comes to live in our lives, He's going to lead and guide us into all truth. He's a, we're, we're going to live that law better than anybody that ever even tried to get to heaven doing their best to live that law could do. Because that's what the Spirit of God does. It, it lives out in perfect agreement who God is and what God desires from us. The ministry and the leadership of the Holy Spirit in us leads us to live for the Lord Jesus Christ and to please Him. Well, we're going to, we're going to break away tonight and the teenagers will go upstairs and... And uh, Nolan, would you take us to the Lord in a word of prayer? Then y'all can sing some praises to the Lord's name and, and pray for Mary and all of those mentioned.